You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Parkview. My name is Will Fieldberth. I'm one of your pastors. If we have not met yet, I would love to do so after the service this morning. I also want to extend a special welcome to visitors or those of you who are just checking out church might be joining us this morning. Uh, we're so glad that you are here. Um, while visitors and non-Christians are always welcome on Sunday mornings, so we, we, we hope that you always walk away feeling, feeling welcomed, feeling loved, and learning something about Jesus. But I believe this Sunday will hopefully answer um, some, some questions, offer answers to key questions you you might have about why the Christians in this room have placed their hope in the God that we worship and built our entire lives around these truths. Uh, this series that we're in over the season of Advent is an opportunity for us as a church to examine Christ's incarnation. Now, I know that incarnation could be an unfamiliar or churchy word for some of us, but in Christianity, it refers to the fact that God took on flesh assumed a human nature and became a man in the form of Jesus Christ. And as Mark has stated over the past two weeks, while there are many unique things about Christianity, one of the key central truths of the Bible that sets it apart is that God himself came to us in flesh. So our series, Son of Heaven, is allowing us to look at the few facets of these truths, a few ways that Christ's incarnation is specifically for us, for our benefit. Now, I do want to start with a brief disclaimer that the series is somewhat uh, different from usual at Parkview and honestly more challenging in some ways for us to prepare in contrast to our, our preference to spend long periods of time in, in walking through a book of the Bible where we have the benefit of context and long study in one specific chunk of the Bible. We have been dipping in and out of a few passages over the last couple weeks um, as we trace this theme of Christ's incarnation through the Bible. However, we absolutely still aim to make sure that you all can see clearly that what we are claiming in our sermons is rooted in the Bible and therefore absolutely true. If you've been here for the past couple weeks, and don't worry if you haven't, I'm about to recap the, those, those sermons here, we've examined two benefits, two facets of Christ's incarnation so far. First, we discussed how the Son took on flesh in order to reveal God to us so that we may know the truth addressing our greatest need. Mark rooted this theme in John 1 as Jesus Christ as the Word who was with God, was God, and was in the beginning with God. He said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is who Christ is. Then last week we discussed how the Son took on flesh in order to experience and model life for us so He can help us. Hebrews 2 tells us that we have a great high priest who is completely able to sympathize with us because he has been tempted in every way are, yet remained perfect and sinless. He has gone before us to endure temptation, to live in perfect obedience to the Father, and to experience suffering and persecution. We can now follow after him with confidence, knowing that he has given the perfect example to follow. Which brings us to this week where we will again examine a facet of the incarnation, and this one is incredibly important because it's traced throughout the entire Bible and provides the only hope of greater purpose, greater meaning, life beyond physical death. This week we will be seeing Christ as the conquering king, but maybe not how we would expect because the wonderful mystery of the incarnation is that Christ did not take on flesh as a powerful, strong, 
ruler for this earth. He didn't take on flesh to overthrow worldly empires and reclaim immediate victory for Israel. However, he did come to defeat the last and greatest enemy. He came to a little-known family at a seemingly insignificant time as a weak little baby. He grew up without great wealth, as an average-looking man, as an, in an average job, in an average town. And yet in all of this, we must still hail him as our conquering king because our big idea for today is the son became man to defeat sin and death so that we can be saved. Christ, the son of God, took on flesh to defeat sin and death so that we can be saved. And while we will not spend all of our time here Ephesians 2 is a crucial and beautiful passage that supports this statement. If you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, I'm going to begin our time by reading this passage. Then I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of great encouragement and important truth. How wonderful that you have given us Bible passages like this that allow us to find hope and joy in you. We pray that as we learn from your word and about your son now, that you would give us wisdom and clarity. Lord, would you speak through me? Help me to proclaim this good news of the gospel faithfully. And Lord, would you be glorified as we see whole disciples continue to be formed in the image of Christ. We ask Saul in your most precious name. Amen. Uh, You know, as the worship pastor, you would think that Christmas wouldn't sneak up on me as it always seems to. I'm listening to Christmas music in October and sometimes even September. I know it's, it's awful in order to start getting ideas for what we should sing. And yet somehow we get to December 1st and I have no idea where November went. Um, in fact, now I hope I don't scare too any of you too much here, but we're just eight days away from Christmas. And yet, standing here this morning, it somehow still doesn't feel real. I don't know about you. We've now had, you know, work Christmas parties for both my wife Savannah and I, uh, and my community group had a Christmas party on Wednesday, and Christmas with my extended family uh, this weekend. But honestly, it still feels like Christmas is, is weeks away. Maybe it's the lack of snow outside. I'm not sure. But one of the questions you may get around this time of year, you know, it was a question at the family feud game we played at Savannah's staff Christmas party. Uh, I was asking around at our community group. It might be an icebreaker question that some of you have heard, um, but is to look back and consider what some of the best gifts you've ever received are 
or maybe some of the worst gifts you've ever received are. Uh, that last one, I hope, hopefully you associate with a white elephant gift exchange or something given for comedic effect and not a well-intentioned gift from an aunt or uncle that just didn't realize what they were giving you. But um, we did a white elephant gift exchange on Thursday here at our staff Christmas party, and it was, it was relatively tame. Nothing, nobody went home with too bad of things. But I remember last year uh, at our worship team Christmas party, uh, I ended up with a two-gallon jug of peanut oil. I had no idea what to do with it, and so, of course, I took it to my community group later that night and gave it to somebody else, so (laughs) off my hands. But uh, when I ask about the best Christmas gift question, that may spark something for some of you. I know you're all thinking, Will, we know the answer to this question. We're in church. When I ask you what the best gift is, you say, Jesus. Yeah, okay, we'll get there, but I want to think about other things first. Um, I'm sure you can also think of some other gifts you've received that have been especially meaningful. I remember a Christmas when I was maybe 10, where my parents and grandparents colluded to get me a larger gift. I remember the morning coming downstairs at my grandparents' house uh, and seeing this big box, about as big as I was at the time. I couldn't really lift it, but I kind of jostled it around, and it sounded like there was plastic shaking around inside or something. You know, so after I was thinking, maybe it's the biggest Lego set ever or something already broken, and I was just going to open it. But I opened it, I remember, and found an iPod Nano inside. My parents had completely fooled me. Uh, This massive box they had filled with extra Lego pieces and some puzzles in order to throw me off the scent. Um, But while this present blew me away, I really loved that iPod Nano. And I still have it somewhere in a closet. The packaging is a good portion of the reason I remember it so well. And now you're probably thinking that there's another analogy in here for how things don't always appear as they seem and can often subvert expectations like Jesus as a baby but I didn't think of that until later last night. So, you're wrong, I didn't get there. (laughs) But, back to significant presence. What was that for you? Maybe it's something that fits a specific need you've had, like a new tool to better accomplish that project you've been wanting to start, or a new pair of socks just when you wore a hole in your last pair. Or maybe it's something incredibly valuable or costly, like jewelry, something that allows someone to communicate how much you mean to them or something valuable because it was encouraging and came just when you needed it most, like a handmade card from a child. Maybe it's something that caught you off, uh, completely off guard and felt totally undeserved, like a generous gift from a friend. And so there are three things that I want to point out concerning those gifts that we often consider the most meaningful. First, what often makes gifts meaningful is that they come in a place of lack or to fill a need, even if it's not always one that we recognize at the time. Second, those gifts often cost the gift giver something. They may not always come with a price tag like jewelry, but when you recognize that the other person sacrificed something for your benefit, those gifts become more meaningful, right? And third, those gifts are unexpected and undeserved. While parents may sometimes threaten their children with with no gifts if they're not nice, we also recognize that the person receiving the gift did not really ever earn the gift in the first place, right? That makes it not a gift anymore. So I hope you can see where this is leading as we come back to our passage and theme for today and the greatest gift of all, Jesus, and the salvation found in him. We'll start by seeing that Jesus saw our need, our lack for where he was able to meet us, and then examine this gift, which was radically sacrificial and costly and totally undeserved. Ephesians 2 takes us on this progression from death to life. We were dead Through faith, we are now alive in Christ. 
And so let's start by looking down at Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and our greatest need. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's pretty heavy stuff, but it accurately describes our life without Christ. And we've seen this the past couple weeks, right? And I guess every week in some sense when we come here to church, but as Christ reveals God to us, we are also confronted with the reality of our sinfulness. The word, the light has shone in the darkness and has shown to us our need for a savior. He is the perfect high priest because he was the sacrifice for our sins and our advocate before the Father in our sinfulness. He experienced and modeled life for us where we so often fall short. And so the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians, his letter to the church in Ephesus, as he is describing to them what is, he, he is actually describing the reality of all of us before Christ. We were dead in our sin. We followed the course of the world. We lived in the passions of our flesh and did whatever we desired like the rest of mankind. In Parkview, this is true even if we turn all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have been placed in the Garden of Eden in paradise, but they disobey God. And Genesis 3.19 says, right after God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God's condemnation and the logical result of our rebellion against God is that we are no longer allowed eternity in his presence. In the garden with the promise of eternal communion of, with God on the line, given the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve still chose to give in to temptation and satisfy the desire of their flesh. God made it clear in his initial command that on the day they eat the fruit, they would surely die and while they don't drop dead in that moment, death is now the future for Adam and Eve and the rest of mankind. God's condemnation of returning to dust comes in this perfect world has been stained by sin and death. And I think it's important to clarify here these terms death and life that we are discussing today because while death absolutely refers to the physical death where bodies cease working, uh, when what also entered in with sin was an eternal death where we are no longer promised eternal communion with God. Apart from Christ, as Ephesians 2 describes it, we were dead and destined for eternal judgment and condemnation apart from God. There is no life in us, even if we are talking and walking around and doing everything, and even as we are moving ever closer to physical death. Because Romans 5.12 is really the summary passage of the Bible that explains our brokenness and situation without Christ. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, every one of us experiences these consequences. And before we start thinking, thanks, Adam, we must recognize that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And no one here can claim that they haven't seen the effects of sin and death in the world around us or, or personally in our own lives. 
We see, we, we just prayed about them, the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East, um, the pain and the suffering that each of you may experience, the, the ways that you have been wronged this week, or the, even how quickly you may be naturally inclined to wrong others. I don't think many of us need convincing that sin and death are present and prevalent in the world around us. And like that best friend who knows exactly what you need in your moment of need, of loss, of pain, of loneliness, Jesus has stepped in to provide what we truly need. I know that old books can sometimes be intimidating, but if I can suggest one book from the early church, I guess apart from the Bible, um, it might be On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius of Alexandria, written in the fourth century, and especially in light of our series, I could not recommend it highly enough. Even in modern books, I have yet to find a book that is as comprehensive and as beautiful in dealing with Christ's incarnation. It's not overly challenging or long, and, and if you need more incentive, C.S. Lewis wrote the introduction for the most popular English translation. So what else do you need to, as endorsement to read that? Uh, but Athanasius starts his book in the creation and fall account of Genesis, much like we do in our sermon today. Because as he says, it was our sorry case that caused the word to come down, our transgression that called out his love for us, so that he made haste to help us and to appear among us. It, was, it is we who were the cause of his taking human form and for our salvation that in his great love he was both born and manifested in a human body. This is his justification, his argument for the incarnation. And I, I, at this point, I really just wanted to read like six straight pages from this book here because he has such wonderful truth. But um, let's turn back to Ephesians 2 at this point. If you look down with me at verses 4 through 7, it says, but God. And I really don't know if there are more beautiful words that could be said there following verse 3. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Parfait, I think I just, I want to read those verses again. Is that okay? I think that I don't think I can say anything better than what's said here, and so I'm just going to read those, three, those four verses again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Church, this is it. This is a succinct and beautiful description of Christianity and the gospel. If you're a visitor here or a non-Christian joining us this morning, this is the source of our hope. Christ came to meet us perfectly in our need, and I want to draw our attention to a couple aspects of this section as we think about what Christ has done for us in his incarnation, in defeating sin and death. First, this is all rooted 
in God's great love for us. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation. That's the good news of the gospel, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son who took on flesh, became man for our sake. Love so great that he would sacrifice his son for us, his love overflowing in mercy. Second, verse five starts with, even when we were dead. Parkview, this love for us, this mercy shown toward us was, not, was full not when we were already redeemed or had everything together, we're doing the right things. No, it is in the deadness of sin, of disobedience, of following the passions of our flesh that God loved us and poured out mercy on us. I hope you realize how radical this is. This is the miracle work of defeating sin and death. God has brought life out of death. This is the perfect gift that we needed and is undeserved and unexpected. It's the, it's the friend still coming to you when you are taking advantage of them and giving you more. It's the parent coming to their child in the middle of a temper tantrum and wrapping them in a loving embrace and promising them everything. As Dane Ortland said in his chapter on Ephesians 2, in Gentle and Lowly, that God is rich in mercy means that your reg- regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things that you, that, about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. So finally, in this uh, chunk, I want, I want to point out that we see five verbs that stood out to me this week that should induce great joy in us. God has one, loved us in our sin. Two, made us alive together with Christ. Three, he's raised us up with Christ. Four, he seated us with Christ. And five, we will continue, he will continue to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. These five verbs encompass the resurrection, life-giving work accomplished when Christ defeated sin and death in his incarnation. Parkview, not only has our God loved us, but he has resurrected us. Not only has he given us new life, but he has given us a new status and position with Christ. Not only do we have this new status, but this is a status that is so secure enough that we can sit at the table with Christ. Not only is this status secure, but God is going to continue to remind us and show us the goodness of his promises for eternity. Do you realize what our God has done for us? There's a song written by Davy Flowers that came out about a year, a year and a half ago that's rooted in this passage in Ephesians 2, and she, she does such a good job articulating these truths that I just, I'm going to share the lyrics here with you all. I'd encourage you to pull it up, listen on your way home. Um, if you haven't heard it yet, it's called Oh But God, based on those beautiful words at the start of verse 4. She writes, I was buried beneath my rebellion, lost without hope of redemption, blind in my need for a savior, Oh, but God, 
crushed by the weight of my failure, living the lie I created, digging my grave without knowing, oh, but God. You gave me a truth worth believing, and I traded my chains for your freedom because you were the one that I needed, oh, but God. Resurrecting my heart from the ruins, my rescue came through like the morning. Now this is my sure testimony, oh, but God. And here's the chorus. Rich in mercy, how you loved me. Too much to let me stay lost. My salvation sent from heaven, nailing my sin to a cross. Our salvation was sent from heaven to defeat sin and death. Our sin was nailed to the cross. And really, this was always the plan. We knew that this gift of Jesus, through Jesus' new life, but we haven't really established the how yet. And so if we go all the way back to Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 15 says, this time in God's condemnation of the serpent, he says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And Park, you hear this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That right there is the first glimpse of Christ's redemption in the Bible. Christ, in his incarnation, came to crush the head of the serpent while having his heel bruised, suffering temporarily the sting of death in his body. Christ took on flesh at great cost, emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant, living a life of costly, perfect obedience, and then suffering a gruesome, humiliating, and unbelievably painful death on our behalf in order to ultimately defeat Satan, sin, and death. And I'm going to go back to Athanasius and on the incarnation for another paragraph here as he describes this wonderful mystery. He says, the body of the word, then, being a real human body, in spite of its having been uniquely formed from a virgin, was of itself mortal and, like other bodies, liable to death. But the indwelling of the word loosed it from this nat natural liability so that corruption could not touch it. Thus it happened that two opposite marvels took place at once. The death of all was consumed in the Lord's body, yet because the word was in it, death and corruption were in the same act utterly abolished. Parkview, this is the good news of Ephesians 2, the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came as a man to experience death in order to once and for all defeat sin and death for us. And so we can consider Jesus as a kind of anti-Adam, right? The second Adam where all, we all have life offered through him. Romans 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus purchased this new life through his own death. As we saw in a passage from last week, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
It was essential that Christ share in our flesh and blood and that through death, he destroys the one who has the power of death. As we saw in our Advent reading earlier, God has swallowed up death forever and we have waited for him that he might save us. Now, Parkview, I do understand that there might be people here rightly asking the question, if Jesus destroyed sin and death, why does it seem that we still feel the pain? Why are there still wars being fought? Why are the people I love still affected by death? Why do I still struggle with sin? And while there's no one clear way to answer all these questions completely, I will, I'll tr- try to provide some truths here from the Bible. First, while physical death has not been stopped yet, for those in Christ, the sting is completely gone because spiritual death has been defeated. Physical death does not lead to punishment and further separation from God, but to greater experience of his presence and freedom for the, from the things of this world. If you are in Christ, though, that is true of you. That's not to say it doesn't make death still painful to those still here, but we can have confidence that if someone has put their faith, their trust in Jesus, they will spend eternity with God where we will one day be as well. Second, while sin has not been eradicated from our lives yet, for those in Christ, the power is completely gone. Christ has defeated sin completely and given us new desires and a renewed heart and mind with the Holy Spirit to guide us, and yet we are still living in a broken world and still in our fallen flesh. This is not to make excuses for sin or to say that we should stop fighting against it, but merely to say that we will not experience true sinless practice on this side of eternity. What we do experience is the promise that God will continue to work in us to produce obedience and alignment with his will. And perhaps more importantly, we also experience the comfort from 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Park you, even when we sin, that is not how God sees us. He sees Christ's finished work Sin and death defeated for us, a stamp of Christ's righteousness in its place. And third, while we are not there yet, Christ has prepared a day for us where sin and death will truly be no more. He will wipe away tears from every face, make every wrong right, no more sickness or disease, no more war or conflict, a day where every moment is yet another step into experiencing the glory of Christ afresh. Christ's resurrected body is a foretaste, the first fruits of our future, and we eagerly await that day, especially during this season of Advent. So for those of you who are here today and maybe haven't heard this before, who have, or who have heard it and haven't gone all in, I just want to ask you to consider what is holding you back? What is stopping you from placing your trust in Jesus as the source of life and giving everything to him? This is the offer that is on the table, eternity and joy and freedom from fear of death. And if you still have questions, I would personally love to talk to you after the service, but don't leave without talking to someone about this. I guarantee you could find someone in the seats around you who would love nothing more than to answer these questions and help you get plugged in at Parkview to help you learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. And as Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you're sitting here this morning wondering how you earn this or, or what you have to do, that's not how gifts work. Completely undeserved, freely given. Maybe you're sitting here and, and the thing that's holding you back is that you feel that you are too lost. But what Ephesians 2 says is that God is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. Dane Ortland puts it this way, Christ was sent not to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people, or advise confused people, or inspire bored people, or spur on lazy people, or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. That is what is happening in the Christian life. We cannot pretend to be wounded people who have been mended, or confused people who have been advised. We were dead people brought back to life. It's completely undeserved, and incredibly powerful. It is only grace through faith. One of the key verses that's often used to help explain the gospel is Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death. That was the first part of our sermon today. Death entered the world through the sin of Adam. It was earned just like a wage as the consequence of our actions. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our, our Lord. Is our prayer that you would accept that gift this morning if you have not already. And for those of us who have already experienced that freedom and new life in Christ, first of all, it is never too often that we are reminded of these truths. So I hope they have been encouragement to you this morning. But I would also encourage you to consider how you live differently with this knowledge that Christ has defeated sin and death in your life. Ephesians 2.10, the, the last verse in our passage for, for today, which we didn't really touch, encourages us to walk in the good works that he has prepared for us. Is that how we think about our lives in Christ? Or do we still live by allowing passions of the flesh to control us in different areas? Or maybe we get the order of these verses flipped and, and forget that it is the gift that we re, of God that we receive salvation and place more stock in our works. Maybe we still live in fear of death itself because we enjoy the things of this world. And let's, Parkview, let's remember that we are new creations. It is by grace that we have been saved, and we must live out that new identity in Christ. So as we transition into observing communion together, I'm going to share one last quote from On the Incarnation. Athanasius says, If then... It is by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ that death is trampled underfoot. It is clear that it is Christ himself and none other who is the archvictor over death and has robbed it of its power. Death used to be strong and terrible, but now since the sojourn of the Savior and the death and resurrection of his body, it is despised and obviously it is by the very Christ who mounted on the cross that it has been destroyed and vanquished finally. Parkview, this is the good news of the gospel that we remember each week we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. As 1 Corinthians 11 states, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, in proclaiming the Lord's death, we are also proclaiming the death of death and sin and the new life found in Christ. 
If you do not pick up the elements on your way and you can go ahead and slip up a hand, we have some ushers who can get those to you. This is a meal that we reserve for those who, as we just discussed, have placed their trust in Christ. They've admitted their sinfulness, their need for a Savior, and have turned to Jesus for salvation. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to pray a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of prayers um, from pastors and Christians who lived hundreds of years ago, and then the team is going to lead us in our last song. Uh, when you are ready during that song, you can take the elements on your own, and then one of the worship leaders will invite you to stand and sing later in the song. But take as much time as you need here to reflect on these truths and pray to the Lord, because these are the gifts of God for the people of God. We can taste and see that the Lord is good. So let's pray together. O God of my exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave, free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Show me herein the proof that his vicarious offering is accepted, that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is shivered, that his wrongful throne is leveled. Give me the assurance that in Christ I died, in him I rose, in his life I live, in his victory I triumph, in his ascension I shall be glorified. Adorable Redeemer, thou who wast lifted up upon a cross, art ascended to highest heaven, Thou who as man of sorrows was crowned with thorns art now as Lord of life wreathed with glory. Once no shame more deep than, my, than yours, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel. Now no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. Thou art in the triumph car leading captive thine enemies behind thee. What more could be done than thou hast done? Thy death is my life thy resurrection my peace, thy ascension my hope, thy prayers my comfort. Amen.